the future of telemedicine. I'm Tanya Hall, and joining me is Anne Mon Johnson, CEO of the American Telemedicine Association, the ATA. Welcome, Anne. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So when was the ATA founded, and what's the organization's mission? So the organization was started over 25 years ago by the pioneers, the academicians, the clinicians who really created this industry. And uh, I joined the organization in 2018. I assumed the leadership position. My background had been in startups and healthcare. So I had never been in an association, had never been in a nonprofit environment. And when I joined, it was pretty clear that while the ATA had done a lot of great work in terms of advancing guidelines and standards uh, around telemedicine and really working to establish the industry, we had an opportunity to do even more. And that was because adoption engagement in, in telehealth was fairly anemic. And this is again in 2018. So set out to create a new vision and mission for the organization, which is to ensure that people get care where, where and when they need it. And when they do, they know it's safe, effective, and appropriate while enabling clinicians to do more good for more people. So that's the vision and the mission of the organization. Today, we represent over 400 organizations, including delivery systems like Intermountain and Sutter and Oxner in New Orleans. We include payers like Humana and United, uh, a number of academic medical centers, including UC Health in Colorado, and then a range of solution providers that really represent the gamut of what's available in the industry. So telemedicine is very broadly defined. It's more than what we're doing right now, which is synchronous communication, voice and video. It's really uh, asynchronous, synchronous and remote monitoring. And so, our solution providers include household names like Teladoc Health and Amwell, organizations like Babylon Health that are very asynchronous in their approach, uh, companies like Zipnosis that enable delivery systems to provide telehealth services to their communities, and then organizations that really are very focused on consumers, direct to consumers like PIMS and Roe, and then organizations that are um, you know, really providing a lot of technology to the industry like Philips and Vivify. And then you have a number of organizations that really believe in high water floating all boats. And these are technology giants like Microsoft and AWS, HP, Intel, Sony, Verizon. So quite a few, pretty diverse group. It certainly is. That was, that was quite an explanation. So Let's talk about this last year. What kind of telemedicine fire drill did the national health emergency force on healthcare providers? What did the industry do well and what weaknesses did it expose? So I think it's important when we talk about the emergency and the pandemic that we put it in context of where we were prior, which was as a healthcare system, we had a um, really big problem in terms of ensuring that people had access to clinicians. There's an inadequate supply of clinicians to deal with the healthcare needs of our population. And so this idea of providing face-to-face -face services and one-on-one -on -one services was just not sustainable. And we really needed to use technology to reimagine how we deliver care. And that was really 
uh, exacerbated during the pandemic because on top of everything else, you had people who were frightened. They didn't know what to do. They didn't know where to go. And so what happened with telehealth was that it really responded in a way that we knew it always could, which was to ensure that people were able to get care and guidance when they needed it most. So you had um, organizations that literally, um, I don't even know what the figures are in terms of quadruple or, you know, incredible X percentage growth of their services in a matter of days, if not weeks. And um, what they did then was what we call, um, one of our members said, we really saved the healthcare system from imploding because we were able to help people. We were able to, through um, asynchronous chat and through phone calls and video, we were able to provide guidance and assurance and direction to people who otherwise didn't know how to get in hold of their physician or their hospital. They really didn't know what to do in the emergency. So the industry was amazing in terms of innovation and really scaling rapidly because again, if you could imagine all the people who are on the phone or exchanging texts, if they had all shown up at the emergency department, it would have been a disaster, even more of a disaster than it was. To what degree do laws and regulations have to evolve to support a post-pandemic telemedicine situation? That's a great question. So it's obviously something that we're working on. And um, at the federal level, there are uh, a lot of laws in place, regulations that quite frankly have not caught up with technology. And so what the pandemic did was really expose where those gaps were. And so you had really sort of arcane uh, practices or regulations that did not allow people to receive telehealth in their home or they had to go somewhere and the physician had to be in a certain place. So these sorts of what we refer to as originating site, these are real limitations that were lifted, waived during the um, pandemic, during the health emergency. And today we are working hard to make sure that those are permanent changes that are made available to Americans. Um, we also saw incredible growth in the amount of services that were gonna be covered by telehealth. And so that was pretty fantastic. And again, we want as many of those as possible to remain permanent. And then we also had within um, you know, telehealth, we had this incredible surge of people who were going online, physicians who were for the first time using telehealth. And remarkably um, and pleasantly, they were surprised at how often it was very easy to use and how quickly their patients adapted. So what happened there was this whole surge of using um, FaceTime and, and audio only and um, many of those things uh, we hope become permanent, but there are others that were concerned that they're not sufficient in terms of providing security measures, cybersecurity, you know, not open to hacking for patients. So we want to make sure that patients are protected as well. So there's some things that were lifted and waived and others that were not um, or that we think should not be continued. I think the other issue that happened during the pandemic was that there was a real exposure of what happens at the federal level versus what happens at the state level. And so I think initially people thought, well, the federal government could just flick a switch and people could do whatever they wanted in all 50 states and territories in the District of Columbia. And in point of fact, that's not the case. So remind people that you had Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson 
there's some real foundational issues that the states have purview over, particularly when it relates to licensing. So instead of having some massive federal um, waiver as it relates to licensing, what happened was that a lot of governors passed um, emergency orders around that. And, and many of those, um, again, were done very well, some less so. So you have a lot that happens in terms of um, the licensure that happens at both the federal and state level. So what technologies are the most enabling for telemedicine today and what breakthroughs do you anticipate in the near term? So the fantastic thing about telehealth is that it's really meeting people where they are. So this whole notion of remote monitoring, for example, which was used to keep pregnant women at home and safe and, and eyes on them, if you will, older adults who are not able to travel easily to their physician appointments or their clinic appointments. So again, this kind of technology of remote monitoring is fantastic. It was also used by our members um, for first responders to make sure that people were staying safe, safe and healthy. Um, that is incredible innovation. Asynchronous solutions where you can fill out information in a very interactive, a very um, complex or comprehensive way uh, to find out whether or not your symptoms were consistent with COVID and what you should do if they were, you know, shelter in place, quarantine, that sort of thing. So the asynchronous solutions were absolutely phenomenal in terms of how they rose to the occasion. And then of course, we just saw that physicians who had never used telehealth before found that whatever preconceived notions they had about the limitations of the technology, they could actually get a lot done even if they weren't laying hands. So we have as an industry, a bias towards physicality. And you see that this idea of being able to touch someone or be in the same room, likewise bricks and mortar for hospitals and physician offices. And what the pandemic revealed was that you don't have to have all that physicality, that there are a lot of things that lend themselves well to a virtual approach. So then looking ahead, what might it take to create a true hybrid healthcare delivery system, one that includes both in-person and virtual care services? I think that we are well on our way to do that because we also know that telehealth is not a panacea. It's not appropriate for all situations. It's not appropriate for all people. It's not all appropriate for um, everything, and yet it works very well in other situations. So this is the kind of exploration we're doing within the ATA with our members and our partners to really understand you know, what lends itself best to a completely virtual approach. Um, what are the populations, the use cases, the specialties that, that we can be doing more virtually? And what, what's the balance between in-person versus virtual? And uh, I think the other thing that we're really gonna be addressing is how do we as an industry step up and address the disparities that were really revealed and made horribly raw during the pandemic. There are things that we knew were already in place. We knew that healthcare wasn't evenly distributed in the US. We knew that it takes a long time, 17 years often for evidence-based guidelines to get adopted by the broad community. So how can we as a technology accelerate that? How can we ensure that people get care even in the most remote parts of the US as well as in medical deserts within urban markets? So there's a real opportunity there as well. And 
those are the kind of conversations we're having that I'm quite frankly, very excited to be a part of. Well, thanks for all the work that you're doing. Anne Mon Johnson, CEO of the ATA. If somebody wants to find out more about that work, or maybe they want to learn more about the ATA, what's the best way they can do that, Anne? The best way is to go to our website, which is chock full of so much information about what we're doing on the policy front. We have over 300 bills that have been introduced in state legislatures um, as of December of 2020. So we're tracking most of those. So this is the kind of stuff that we do within the ATA and that's at americantelemed.org. Thanks again for your time, Anne. Absolutely. And find more of my interviews right here on YouTube, iTunes, and Spotify, or at tanyahall.net. Thanks for watching.